sir. Well, something like that. Uh, well, you know, I, I had back surgery two years ago. I just don't know if I should. No, I'm just kidding. Wow. See, that's what, that's what the workout class that Jennifer does at the church at now and then. They kind of give you a glimpse of it. So, awesome, awesome, awesome. I'll tell you what, I, I got, we have that CD now, and I just picture myself driving down the road for business, walking up in a client's office, bubbling up, bubbling up. So. <laughs> it's all good. Isn't that song amazing? Man, whew, they did a good job. Good morning. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I, I just want to echo what CJ's already said uh, because it, VBS, uh, obviously Children's Ministry, has a huge special place in my heart. But I just want to say a huge thank you to, uh, to Molly, uh, her team, uh, everybody that was involved. I know it's a, a massive undertaking for a children's minister, a children's ministry team, uh, uh, an organization like that to take on something like this. It's one of the, the biggest tasks uh, in the life of children's ministry in the church. But it's also one of the probably the biggest and greatest gospel message opportunities in the life of kids. It's probably one of the single most influential times in the life of most believers as a kid where they heard the gospel and they responded to the gospel. They, they, they responded to the love of Jesus. And so I'm very thankful to, to Molly and the team. So if you will, just give her another quick thank you, please. Absolutely. Um, as many of you may know, last weekend, several men from Gateway, we all loaded up and we traveled to Birmingham for the Gridiron Men's Conference. And uh, it's something that I had the chance to go do last year and um, went by myself just as a, a time to kind of gather. And, and, and fortunately, Sherry saw the, the importance of me getting away and doing that. And I'm very thankful for that. But as I was there last year, I just kind of really felt the sense and the urge from God to, to bring back this next year, this, this year, a group of men from the church to go and experience what I experienced the year before, but to experience a weekend devoted to the truth and the message of the gospel to men. And so last weekend, nine of us traveled up there Friday night and Saturday morning, and we heard uh, many great speakers. And I'll talk a little bit about that in a minute. But um, I want to invite Daniel Polk to come up and to share just some of the things that um, he experienced over the course of those uh, six speakers and uh, just kind of share with you his heart. All right. All right. Wrong. Good deal. Um, after uh, after the conference, we met for lunch. Jeremy, we were sitting down and, and talking, and Jeremy said, I want to invite, you know, maybe up to three of you guys to share three to five minutes each. And since I'm the one up here, I'm going to take the full 15 minutes for the for the three. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. I won't do that. But if, if you're like me and you hear going to a men's conference as a man, I mean, what do you think of? I mean, what always pops in my mind is, this group of guys just, you know, the price of admission is you have to wrestle a wild boar and just, just to be able to get in, and uh, you have to live off the land for the weekend. They won't actually feed you. I mean, it's, you know, it's a real barbaric image of, of men, right? And, and But it's not like that at all, and I hope that uh, you don't feel – am I the only one who thinks that? Maybe I'm the only, I'm the only weird one, I guess. But um, it really showed the need, and the highlight of it was speaker after speaker showing the need for – men to be men of God, to be kingdom men, as uh, Tony Evans puts it. And uh, if you're like me, I have used my family as an excuse to not do that. Uh, oh, I'm, I've been at work all day. I want to come home be with my kids. They need me. My wife needs me. And use them as an excuse. And really, that should be the greatest reason to do things like this, to fellowship with other men, other godly men, and, and receive the mentorship, the discipleship 
to learn how to be a better man of God because the Bible places specific responsibilities for men. It is awesome responsibilities. It's, it's a lot to do, but it's an honor to be able to do it. Rick Burgess was one of the speakers who talked about he goes to he gets invited to a lot of churches you know of, of Rick and Bubba and um, he'll ask them about their ministry so so tell them about your children's ministry tell them about your women's and your youth ministry and they all the people always light up oh this is you know, we were doing this and this and there's all these exciting programs going on and then what well, tell me about your men's ministry and almost every time it's kind of a I mean they, they get real you know defend and kind of downtrodden whatever the proper word is and and that's sad. And he said he can look at church budgets and see the importance that's placed on a men's ministry. And I know there are some groups of men that, that meet here, and that's awesome. That's awesome. Uh, he, he also talked about at his church that they, they implemented a man church. And we all just, I think all of us just lit up at the, at the thought of that old man church. Um, but what, what they do is once a quarter, they get all the men and they just have a men's service. No women and children are allowed. That way you can really get down to the nitty-gritty and talk about things that you can't talk about with women and children there. And he said they, they'll do that and then have discipleship throughout the weeks leading up to the next man church. And one thing that struck me is that he said if you do it right, it means that your numbers will go down every quarter because it's hard to hear the truth, right? It's hard to, I mean, it's easy to hide behind excuses in each other, but if you're hearing the truth and being called out for it, your numbers will go down. And so we, we kind of talked a little bit about that afterwards. Then the other uh, thing that really struck me was one of the speakers talked about prayer and, and your family seeing you uh, pour your heart out to God as a man. And one mistake that I have made is I, I don't let my children see my weakness. I only let, let them see me in periods of strength, and I hide my weakness and just take that alone before God. And he said, no, your children need to see you in your prayer life. They need to see you pour your heart out to God. They need to see how you handle struggles. We've had plenty of struggles co- coming up, up to this point, but I've hidden them from my, I mean, I've sheltered them. And that's been a, a fault of mine that I have not done very well. And thankfully, um, one of the things I was going to do as a result of that was implement at least once a week for us to have a family devotion. And that was a direct result of, of the speaker from the, the Gridiron Conference. And uh, we were able to do that yesterday. Uh, there was a situation where I didn't respond the way I should have. And that was a great opportunity to use that to gather the family together and tell the kids, you know, Daddy struggles too. Daddy's a sinner too and needs a Savior, just like everybody else. That's the only way that I can have true strength is through Jesus. So we're able to use that as a teaching opportunity, and we're to pray together as a family. And that's something we're going to continue to do. And as far as where we go from here, we're, we're still talking about that. And, uh, I mean, it's something that we want to do is, is as a group of men, I mean, really do something to move the men's ministry forward, talk about true discipleship. If we do it right, the numbers will go down, right? But well, we hope to see some of y'all at the Gridiron Conference next year, and you don't you don't have to wrestle a wild boar to get in. It's nothing like that. But uh, it was a great time, and I'm uh, thankful, thankful for the invitation. Thank you, Dan. Uh, one of the interesting parts of Daniel, I was talking about this a minute ago, the man church. The very first time it met, and they decided not to have it in the main sanctuary at this church, a big church, but they, I think they had 600 men, the very first 600-something men. But um, Sherry Burgess, the wife of Rick, said that uh, while he was going to do man church, he dropped the boys off or something for the student ministry. So she thought, you know what, I'll, I'll just go over there and I'll just, I'll just pray while they're doing this. You know, I'll just go over there, get along, and just pray for the men. 
said when she walked up to the back of that chapel, there's 23 women already sitting on their knees and on their face praying for the men. And so, uh, there's a huge conviction and a huge calling that Daniel, myself, and seven other men experienced last weekend, and and I do pray. I, we talked about it, and I think we've pretty much said, call each other out. We've got to do something different. We have to. If we don't, we will fail. Everybody that gathers here, if we don't, we will fail our families. If we fail our families, we're going to fail this church. If we fail this church, we're going to fail our community. If we fail our community, we're going to fail our city, and we're going to fail our state, and then we're going to fail our nation, and then we're going to fail this world. And that's not what God's called us to do with the gospel. That's not what he's called us to do as men. So I'm excited. I'm pumped. And from that course of the weekend, there were several things that God was just showing me and giving me a picture of. And this is not all that I believe that God is, but God kept showing me a picture of who he was. How incredibly good, how incredibly merciful and gracious and loving and forgiving our Heavenly Father is, and man after man that got up and spoke, I believe, gave us that picture. I also saw this picture of just how sinful, how lost, how prideful, how unable, how inadequate, how unworthy man is. And yet, he longs, he runs to, he seeks after, he draws and desires reconciliation with his children. And so over the course of the conference, each speaker got up. There were six men who got up and shared, and they broke down this, this one big verse. It's from Second Chronicles 7.14, and it says this. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. And I'm sure that each man there will tell you that speaker after speaker hit us pretty hard with that verse. And in a great way, as God always does, uh, each man that shared last weekend gave us a pretty clear, clear picture of who God is, who we are, who He's calling us to be, and what He's calling us to do. And so, for me, one of, this, one of the clearest pictures of this is found in uh, Luke chapter 15. And this has been one of those reoccurring stories. I always like to tell you I share one of my favorite stories when I preach. But um, this has been one of those reoccurring stories for me from the Bible that I come back to over and over and over again. And each time I do, I feel like I'm gaining more and more clarity of who our Heavenly Father is, more of a greater picture of who our Heavenly Father is, because that's what this passage is about. And I believe that that is the very point of the story that Jesus is sharing here. He's speaking to, and he's, also, he's told two other stories in, according, in, in connection with this one, but he's speaking to, and he's talking with sinners, Pharisees, and teachers of the law. And I believe this is a, an incredibly deep story, and there's no way that in the next... 10, 15 minutes that I feel like I can really unpack all that's here. 
I don't feel like I'll even get through all my notes, and that's fine. But one thing I want to encourage you to do is this week is to go to Luke chapter 15. The story of the prodigal son. The story of the loving father. Unpack that yourself. Dive in. Read commentary. Search and seek and pray. Communicate with the father. I believe that there's, there's five parts for this passage that I, I want to share with you this morning. There's five things that I want to break down with you this morning and encourage you. Challenge you, and the whole time I'm looking in the mirror. Let's start with verse 11. Go to verse 11 with me, Luke chapter 15. Again, Jesus is talking with sinners, Pharisees, teachers of the law. And he said, Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, Give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he, the father, divided his property between them. If you've read this many times, you probably always come to the conclusion, what a shocking, absolute, outrageous, selfish request of this son. Father is live and well. Younger son, not older son, younger son comes. In just absolute disrespect, dishonor, and requests his inheritance. Now, as, as what would take place is the, the father would actually die, pass away, and then the children would receive inheritance. But the younger son comes, essentially saying, you're dead to me. I'm dead to you. I want what's mine. Give it to me. Now, what a selfish request. What nerve. Again, dishonor, disrespect. But that's not the point of this story. And so right away, I want you to take note of the, the massive point, the massive focus, the incredible picture that Jesus, the reason why he's sharing this with this group of people. We're already starting to see what kind of man the father is. Put yourself in his shoes as a father or mother, and, and this is not the point, but stop and think if your children talk to you that way, demanded something of you that way, what your reaction may have been. We see what this father's reaction is, and again, we see the reason why Jesus is telling the story. He was a very clear picture of the temperament, of his character, of his patience, of his love, of his generosity. The list goes on and on. But yet, this was an absolute selfish request. So Jesus continues the story. He goes from the, the son's selfish request, and now we're going to see the severity and his severe rebellion. We're going to see how far he goes with this selfish request. Verse 13, read with me. Not many days later, the young son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything... A severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. 
So now the selfish request of the son has now led him to a severe rebellion. Remember who Jesus is talking to. This picture of this rebellion is the exact picture he's painting in front of these sinners, in front of the Pharisees, in front of the teachers of the law. Non-religious. They think they're religious. Rebellious. Immoral sinners. The very kind of person that Jesus was there associating with that the Pharisees didn't like. The people who were treated badly by the culture. They were outcasts. They were the lowest of the low, the baddest of the bad, the worst of the worst. And this young man, he demonstrates someone who's gone as low as he can go. All the way to the bottom. Living in an outrageous and an immoral way. Ending up not only taking care of pigs, but eating with them. Living as one, becoming one. This is as bad as it gets. And he ends up completely helpless. I think it's interesting that Jesus uses pigs here as the animal. I mean, could he use goats? He could have used cows, whatever kind of heart, sheep, all of those things. And he uses pigs. And I believe, obviously, it wasn't a mistake. He uses pigs, the, the most unclean, in a religious view, the most unclean animal that this son could have experienced life with. The most unclean. Now, not only is he feeding them, is he eating with them, trying to eat with them, he is now being a pig. I'm not sure if any of you have ever visited a pig farm before, but I will never forget the one time. <laughs> Won't be a two. I'll never forget the one time I visited a pig farm. Um, when I was in third, fourth, and part of fifth grade, my family, my dad was in ministry. We moved to a little town called Lawrenceburg, Tennessee. And go to Tennessee and go to the country, take a left. And so we went to Lawrenceburg, Tennessee, and uh, crazy place. And so we go there, and I don't remember if it was third or fourth grade, but I made friends with this little boy named Dylan. Can't say his last name. And so one weekend, Dylan, uh, we had done some things together at school, and I think our parents probably had met because you know, my dad and Walmart were like, yeah, take my son, whatever. So they had met. We had just moved there. But I, I didn't know this about them, but his mom and dad were pig farmers. And so we go to his house, and uh, I can remember, I don't remember anything about the front of the house, but I can remember walking out of the back of the house, and over to the right, there was a pond. And uh, I thought it was weird. He had a, like a one-man sailboat in the pond, which I thought was, okay, that's pretty cool. I've never seen one of those before. But straight back out of the back door was this massive, this long building, this structure, the pig house. And, and already, I mean, there's no mistake, you could hear the squeals and the sounds, and you could smell it. Whew. And so I thought living with four boys was going to be bad, but I, I'm, I'm good now. So we go back to the pig house and say, hey, come on, let's go take a look at it. I had no idea, you know. So we walk in the door, and I'm going to tell you, that's when, that's when it hits you. And I'm looking down the middle of this, this pig house, and this is long. This is massive. And on the right and left, all the way down, are these little pig pens. And as you're walking down, I'm seeing big pigs and little pigs and mom pigs, I guess, and daddy pigs because there's a bunch of baby pigs. And there's all these little pigs everywhere, noisy, stinky, oh, awful smell. And there was alive pigs and there were dead pigs. See, pigs, they don't care. They'll do whatever they want to do to any pig around them. It was awful. And I'm not trying to be gross or talk, really not trying to be negative about pig farmers because I love my bacon, but... This was horrid. This was horrible. 
And I can't read this passage, this story, ever without getting a picture of that. Now, it wasn't in the mud. It was on concrete. It was dirty. It was nasty. But it wasn't what this exactly is happening. But I'm starting to kind of get an idea. This is where this guy has ended up in his life. Coming from a father who had hired help, who had slaves, who had servants, who had everything he needed. And because of a selfish request and severe rebellion, it's led him to the point where he is in the lowest of low. He's in filth. He's in decay. He's in death. And he can't even live. And he is about to be there. But then there's something great that happens right here at this point in the story. Now, at this point, the father reenters the story, not because he finds the pig farm. He reenters in the mind of the son. Here's the part of the story. And we go from the son's selfish request to his severe rebellion and now to his humbling repentance. Go to verse 17. I get drink water. Verse 17. But when he came to himself, to his senses, he said, the son, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. So treat me as one of your hired servants. Just if I could be treated as a hired servant, then this would be so much better than where I'm at. But let's stop for just a second. He stops and thinks of his father. Why? He knows his father is not an uh, unforgiving man. He knows his father is not a, an angry man. He knows his father is not a I told you so man. He knows his father is a loving, is a kind, is a generous, is a welcoming, is a forgiving Incredible father. And this is where this son's repentance really begins. It begins with an accurate assessment of his condition. He realizes where he's at. It's really important for the sinner to come to this point, to an honest assessment of this, his or her situation, through the conviction for us, through the truth of the word of God. He knows the situation for which he has no resources to get out, Nothing to do that he can do for himself. He knows he is dying of hunger. He knows no one will give him anything. The pigs are being stingy and stinky. And he's losing the battle with the pigs, with himself. It's the end. All repentance begins with an honest assessment of one's condition of desperation, helplessness, no resources, and ultimately impending death. And so he thinks about his father and how many of his father's hired men have more than enough bread who aren't dying of hunger. It says a lot about his father. We've already seen how generous he is, how patient he is, and we start to learn a little bit more. Now we understand a little bit too about hired help. Hired help is somebody that's a day laborer, picked up in the morning, work, paid, and then they go to their own way. Not a slave, not somebody that's taken in, who's now given out room and board, given food, given almost 
an opportunity to kind of be a part of the family. This is the hired man. Okay? This is a day laborer. Lowest of the low. Below even what a slave would be. And he knows that they have room and board, food. And they get to interact with the family. He knows his father has paid them more than enough. He knows he's been gracious to them. Done above and beyond. He's generous. He's loving. He's good. He's kind. He doesn't know anybody else like that. Nobody else comes to his mind at this point but his father. He came to his senses, had a little talk with himself, a little pep talk. This is what I need to do. He humbles himself. He understood he had nowhere to go. He understood something about the goodness of his father. He's ready to place himself on the mercy of the father, having to repent of his sins. He's going to go back and he's going to do whatever he needs to do by making himself a hired man at the lowest point of the totem pole, socially, within the family, whatever, no intimacy with the father, not even as good as maybe a slave would be treated, and definitely not a son. That's his plan. That's what he thinks he can get. That's what he thinks, this is what I need to do. If I can just do this, he has no right to be in the home. No right to receive the family resources anymore. He's going to work his way back into the family, not expecting to be received immediately as a son. So now his humbling repentance is going to lead him to the Father's arms for a gracious reception. This is the amazing part. This is what Jesus is sharing the story. Go to verse 20. And he arose and he came to his father. He had the pep talk. He knew what he was going to say. Had it planned out. Remember every part of that. And so he gets up out of the mire, out of the muck, filthy, nasty, stinky, starving. And he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, this ain't the end of the driveway. His father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, this is the speech, this is what he's rehearsed, this is what he's talked himself into doing. When he came to his senses, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your name. Ah, done. Came to his father. Doesn't even finish the speech. The son, the sinner, ready to face the shame that he deserves. He wants restoration. He wants a new start. He wants resources. He wants to live again. He needs his father. He needs his father's resources. His father can give him life instead of where he was in death. And his hope is in the goodness and kindness and the forgiveness of the father. He's truly repentant. He doesn't even want to be a slave. He just wants to be a hired man, hired help. He knows he's going to have to work to earn it. But what happened? While he was a long way off. Now, this, we could go so far and so deep with this whole part of it. And, and what we're going to come to in just a minute. While he was a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Let's break that down for just a minute. Long way off, meaning that the son hadn't even reached the village before the home, before the farm. So far off. 
We know it's daytime. His father is anticipating this. His father's been longing for this day, been waiting there at the window, at the door, sad, broken. But he knows his son. He knows what his son's doing. He knows what his son's going through. And he knows in his heart he will come back. And he stands there and he sees from a long way off his son coming. Again, past even before the village. And so he runs to him. Father sees him. He's been seeking him. He's been looking for him. Why does he run to him? He wants to reach his son before his son reaches the village. He wants to initiate the reconciliation before he receives or comes to the village first. Why? The father wants to protect the son from the shame, from the guilt, from the slander, from the scorn, from the abuse. The father's going to take that shame. The father's going to bear that reality. He's willing to have the people say, what in the world is this guy doing? Doesn't he know what his son did? Why is he running like this? Now, we can break that down even further. But for the sake of time, just understand this. For this man to be clothed the way he was in full robe, it would have been absolute hypocrisy, whatever you want to call it, foolishness to take off running. Because in running, that would expose his legs. He doesn't care. He takes off running to his son. Takes on the scorn. Now the people aren't just talking about the son. Now the people are talking about what the father's doing. What is he doing? Why is he doing it? Remember who Jesus is talking to. Pharisees. Religious people. And yet the father says, I love my son. And he takes after his son. The father humbles himself out of deep love for his son. Comes all the way down from his house to the dirt through the village. Runs through, bearing the scorn and the shame. And throws his arms around the repentant, believing sinner of his son. Who is coming in absolute filth, unclean, nasty. Father's doing exactly what Jesus would do. Exactly what Jesus is going to do. Exactly what Jesus does for each and every one of his children. Came down through the village, ran through the gauntlet, bore the shame, the slander, the mockery, to throw his arms around the sun, to throw his arms around you and I. Kiss us and reconcile us. This is shocking to those that are standing around listening to this. And remember... What's the shocking part is the son is trying to go through the speech. When he gets to the part where he says, I am no longer worthy to be called your son, he doesn't get to go any further. Because remember verse 19, this is the part he left out. Make me as one of your hired servants. Why? Why does the father not allow him to say that? Because there's no need for that. That's not how reconciliation works. That's not how repentance and coming into Christ works for us. We don't work it out. We receive the full, complete blessing right then. And we continue to grow. And we continue to do. Then that's when works will follow. 
a selfish request, severe rebellion, a humbling repentance, and a gracious reception by the Father leads to complete reconciliation. Let's go to verse 22. But the Father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they begin to celebrate. Again, we can just break this down even further, further, further. Why a robe? Why a ring? Why sandals? Bottom line, the father quickly, immediately turned to the servants, said, put these things on him to treat him like a prince. This is my son. He's not going to have to work for these things. He doesn't have to prove himself. He has repented, and now he has come, and now I'm reconciling him. They put all three of these things on him, and this becomes full reconciliation. He has full rights, privileges, authority, honor, respect, and he is a son, not a hired help. There's no waiting period. There's no test period. There's no reentry re-entry time. There's no limit on the privileges. This is absolute full-blown sonship at the highest level. And it comes immediately. He's not a hired man. He's got sandals on his feet. He's got the best of the best robe around him. He's got the symbol of the family on his finger. He has authority. Much less hired man. He's not even a slave. He has honor. He has responsibility. He has respect. He is a fully reconciled, complete, restored son. So what's the message? What's the point? It's not to compare sin. It's not to say how bad he got, I'm not that bad, or I was worse. That's not the point. Jesus is sharing the story with these men. He's already told two other lost stories, two other return stories. And he's again now a third time showing the significance and the real, the truth about who God the Father is. A loving God. Now, he is a just God. And there are consequences of sin. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. But when you and I are reconciled with the Father, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When you and I are reconciled with the Father, there's no working it out. It's immediate. He forgets it. Will you struggle and will you have to work through that sin and those, those burdens? Yes. But are you chained to him anymore? Absolutely not. The son was not chained to his disrespect to the father to take his selfish request of the money. He wasn't chained to his severe rebellion. He humbly repented. He received the father's love. And he was completely reconciled. And this morning, you and I, have that same reconciliation from God the Father. We have a job to do, yes. But we're fully reconciled to Him. 
this morning, we're going to take communion. And this is exactly what Jesus is speaking of here. Sinner, saved by grace, humble to the point where there's nowhere else to go. Our loving Father went through the village, scorned, mocked, beaten, bloody, carrying our burden all the way with the cross to the cross. And so this morning, the praise team can come on up and the deacons can come who are going to be here helping with communion. But this morning, we're going to take this communion not just because it's the last Sunday of the month. This is not just something we do. We take this to remember our selfish request, our severe rebellion, our humble repentance, His gracious reception of us and His complete reconciliation through the body, through the blood of Jesus Christ. And so when we do this this morning, we do it to remember that, to be thankful that we're restored. This is a table for all believers, whether young or old, whether gateway or not. It doesn't matter. This table is for all believers. So after I pray, there will be deacons that will usher you down the aisle to come receive, take a piece of this bread as the representation of the body of Christ. To come receive the cup as a representation of the blood of Christ. This doesn't save you. Only those things that I shared this morning. This is a thank you and a remembrance of what he's done for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity this morning to remember the restoration, the reconciliation complete restoration that you've done in our lives. God, thank you for bringing us to the point as your children to recognize our sin. Thank you for bringing us to the low of our low to realize that you are what we need, who we need. You're the loving Father. You're the only one we know that can restore that relationship. Father, we take this time this morning to remember what your son Jesus Christ did on the cross for our sins. We remember his death, his burial. Father, we rejoice in his resurrection. We now have life. Eternal life. A life to the fullest. So God, this morning we do this in remembrance of you, your son, and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. After we take this communion.